Welcome to Kaleidoscope of Crime, a true crime podcast where I, your host, Tanya, will discuss all manner of crime perpetrated against or by comedians. These cases may be solved or unsolved because no victim should be forgotten and all families deserve answers. I am not an expert in anything whatsoever. I am just a crime-addicted lady with a potty mouth and a lot to say. If this sounds like your kind of show, then please lift the viewfinder to your eye and let's take a look at the kaleidoscope I've chosen for today. Hello, my crime beacons. I hope that your 2021 is starting off as good as mine has. It's been a great start to the year for me, and I hope it is for you as well. If not, I wish you well and better times ahead. Today we are going to begin a series of episodes on missing and murdered Indigenous women in Canada. I want to use my voice to bring your attention to the lesser known cases of these women and girls, because they all deserve to be known and remembered and found and their cases solved. Because there is less coverage of their cases, I have decided to do two or three stories per episode, one per province or territory, in a kind of a cross-Canada road trip. For this week's episode, I have chosen the cases of Charlene Catholic, Loretta Anne Frank, and Danielle LaRue. But before we jump into these cases, I would like to give you a brief history on the residential school system in Canada. Because residential schools affect every single Indigenous person living in Canada. As in many other countries, white immigrants in colonial Canada sought to destroy Indian cultures and traditions. One of the ways this was achieved was through the government-funded, church-run residential school system. The residential school system began in the 1870s. Although I found a quote by Egerton Ryerson as far back as 1847 in a report for the Indian Affairs, which states, quote, Their education must consist not merely training of the mind, but of a weaning of the habits and feelings of their ancestors and the requirements of the language, art, and customs of civilized life. So basically what he is saying is let's take all these children and turn them into white people because he believes that he is more civilized than they are. I'm not well versed in indigenous cultures and customs, but it is my understanding that as a whole, they are a peaceful, nature-loving, and respectful people who do not abuse children or each other and hold their elders in high regard. And here you have Egerton Ryerson actually having the audacity to say that it is not only acceptable but civilized to destroy an entire culture. I wonder, Beacons, who do you think is the most civilized cult? The one that loves everyone equally or the one that seeks to destroy others? In order to achieve this aim, Indigenous children were forcibly removed from the loving, protective, caring, 
home environments they had been raised in and taken to residential schools where they were not allowed to speak their language or practice their customs or even interact with their own siblings. Before we go any further, I would like to give a further content warning as I will be describing child abuse. As part of my research for this segment, I watched many YouTube documentaries in which survivors described their residential school experiences. These people described harrowing tales of being ripped from their homes where they were loved, nurtured, respected, and protected, and enduring long rides in cars, wagons, and trains, packed in with many other children who they did not recognize and who were equally scared as they were. Upon arrival, they were given four baths in large rooms surrounded by adults and fellow children. Imagine standing there at only five, six years old, naked, in a room full of strangers. How terrifying and degrading that must have been for the children. The children would then be taken to large dormitories filled with single cots and other children, and this is where the real abuse would begin. These children could not speak or understand a word of English, but yet every time they tried to speak in the only language they knew, they would be hit, struck, and beaten, and not have a clue why, and be yelled at in a language they could not understand, and not have a clue what they had done wrong. Sadly, this would only be the beginning of the atrocities these children would endure. They were forced to survive on oatmeal and molasses for all meals, subjected to regular beatings and sexual abuse, and they were living in such squalid and poor living conditions that Duncan Campbell Scott, the deputy superintendent of Indian Affairs, would say, quote, Indian children in the residential schools die at a much higher rate than in their villages. But this does not justify a change in the policy of this department, which is geared toward a final solution to our Indian problem. Well, Duncan Campbell Scott, I don't think you had an Indian problem. I think you had a white man problem. But I guess hindsight is twenty twenty. In the 1950s, new legislation would come in that would allow some children to attend school only during the day and remain at home with their parents the rest of the time. However, attendance was arbitrarily decided by Indian Affairs and within a single family some children would attend day school while others would attend the residential schools. Not only that, but the abuse was just as horrendous and impactful in the day schools as it was in the residential system. The system which began in the 1880s would continue until the final school was shut down in either 1996 or 1998, depending on the sources you look at. That means that for 170 years, for seven generations, Indigenous children were not only neglected, tortured, and abused in every way imagined but they also had their customs, traditions, and family ties stripped from them, which is an unimaginable and unspeakable atrocity. After enduring many years of this, children, now adults, would return home to their families where they would find that they no longer belonged. They were too white to be brown and too brown 
to be white. In addition, because they were very poorly educated, they were unable to enter university. And due to the abuse, alcoholism, and addictions began to set in, and they also continued to perpetuate this abuse as they went into their adult lives, as is often the case. Between this residential school system and the 60s group, in which thousands of indigenous children were forcibly removed from their homes and placed into white adoptive homes all over Canada and the United States, the cultural genocide that colonial immigrants wish to perpetrate against indigenous peoples has almost been successful and the effects continue to be felt very strongly to this day and will take many generations to begin to heal. It is as a direct result of the residential school system and the 60s school that we see significantly higher rates of abuse and addictions among indigenous people. People, as well as systemic racism among the white population and all levels of law enforcement and government to this very day. Hopefully we are on our way to changing this, but unfortunately another side effect of this has been a much higher rate of murders and disappearances among Indigenous peoples. And that is why we are going to look today at the cases of Charlene Catholic, Loretta Ann Frank, and Danielle LaRue. So let's begin with the disappearance of Charlene Kath, who grew up in a remote fishing village called Mitzel Kai in the Northwest Territories. Charlene was a proud member of the Dene peoples. The village in which she grew up, Lutzel Kai, is located on the eastern arm of Great Slave Lake and offers beautiful hiking trails and amazing landscapes like the 180-foot-tall Red Cliffs. Here, people enjoy many outdoor activities such as fishing, hunting, and hiking. It is in this idyllic, remote place that Charlene would grow up. Like most Indigenous children, Charlene would attend residential school and spend her summers at home. Charlene's mother died of cancer when she was only 12 years old, which may have contributed to what her aunt later described as a very understanding nature. After her mother's passing, Charlene was raised by her father Joe and her grandmother. Charlene was born on June 23, 1995, and her father described her as a friendly but quiet girl who loved to watch cartoons before school and loved to play with the younger children in the area. Charlene's aunt, Lorraine Catholic, described her as, quote, a very mature, responsible young lady. She knew she was involved in a relationship she shouldn't have been. And her other aunt, Anne Catholic, described how Charlene was there for her after the death of her partner in 1987. She was really young, but she kind of understood, said Anne. When she became missing shortly after, it was really hard. Anne would also say that Charlene had hopes and dreams and plans that she never got to achieve. What those were, we do not know, but I'm sure Charlene could have achieved wonderful things. In July 1990, when she was only 15 years old, Charlene traveled to Dayta to attend the Dene National Assemblies. According to the Dene Nation website, 
The Dene National Assembly is an annual event held in differing Dene communities. Quote, the Dene National Assemblies traditionally convene each summer in July and is hosted in different communities within the five regions of Denende. Many people from the 30 Dene communities travel to these meetings via air, road, if it's all season, and or boat. The Dene Nation holds these annual and special meetings with equal opportunity for communities to host the assembly where Dene leaders have discussions, consultations, and make resolutions. It's where the leaders come to make their voices heard and commemorate the struggle for retaining sovereignty and advancing Dene concerns, end quote. The Dene National Assembly also includes hand games, venues, and drum dancing celebration. So Charlene's interest in attending could have been cultural, political, social, or all of the above. I don't know, but being a friendly person, I am sure Charlene enjoyed the social aspect of the assembly. Charlene, like so many others, had been forced to attend a residential school, but in spite of this, she was doing her best to participate in her Dene culture. Sadly, this all came to a mysterious end on July 22, 1990, just one month after her 15th birthday. After attending the Dene National Assembly in Deta, Charlene traveled to Vechoko to spend time with friends and then set out to hitchhike home. She was seen by a former residential school acquaintance on Highway 3 near Ray Road walking towards Yellowknife. The acquaintance would later say that they had told her to stay right there for a moment and when they came back, she was gone. Charlene has never been seen or heard from since. Charlene's father, Joe, would spend the rest of his life searching for his daughter. He would travel to five different U.S. states and all over Canada, putting up posters, asking questions, and following even the remotest leads. According to family, police made little, if any, effort, and Joe eventually stopped going to them, later stating that his last contact with RCMP was in 2008 and that he wasn't going to bother them about it anymore. On June 29, 2017, the Supreme Court of the Northwest Territories ruled it had found reasonable grounds to declare Charlene Catholic dead. But, as we all know, my beacons, Declaring a person dead does nothing to assuage the ambiguous loss of a missing person or to heal the pain Charlene's family still feels. Nor does it give anyone any answers about what happened to Charlene that warm July day in 1990. For reasons that are unclear to me, Charlene is still listed as a missing person in spite of having been declared dead over three years ago. At the time of this declaration in 2017, it was reported that Charlene's Aunt Lorraine, who is described as ex-RCMP, had requested and been denied to see Charlene's case file. She expressed extreme skepticism over the police investigation and stated, quote, If I were to see the file, I'd be making my own investigation, end quote. Well, it would seem that Aunt Lorraine got her wish. Later that same year, the Northwest Territories, RCMP, released a Crime Stoppers video on Charlene's case, which is available on YouTube by searching Charlene Catholic Disappearance. 
Sadly, Charlene's father, Joseph Catholic, who was described as loving his daughter very deeply and who had spent more than 30 years and a lot of money traveling and searching for his beautiful daughter, Charlene, passed away on January 20, 2019, at the age of 79. Just four months later, on May 24, 2019, Charlene's case was featured on Canada's Missing Children website as part of a week-long RCMP campaign which saw a new case featured each day of the week. This led to many tips being received and investigated and would later lead to a search near Bad Choco in September 2020. According to a news release posted on the Northwest Territories RCMP website on July 22nd, 2020. We are actively investigating Charlene's disappearance. Any tips from the public could potentially help us shed some light as to what happened 30 years ago and bring closure to her families, states Corporal Mike Lewis of the Northwest Territories RCMP Historical Cases Unit. According to this press release, Charlene's aunt, Lorraine Catholic, has been the family contact since the beginning of the historical investigation. Lorraine stated, quote, I have been diligently involved with this file from day one and spoke with multiple investigators. I have seen the size of the file, and it is not a simple task to investigate and try to resolve Charlene's disappearance. Anyone with information, please come forward, end quote. Charlene is listed as being 5 feet 6 inches tall, and weighing 126 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She had wavy black hair, brown eyes, and a huge, captivating smile. Anyone with information in regards to Charlene Catholic is asked to call Northwest Territories RCMP Major Crimes Unit at 669-111 or contact Crime Stoppers at one 800 222-8477 or you can text N-W-T-N-U-T-I-P-S plus your message to 274637. Before we travel to the Yukon for our next case, I would like to share a promo from my very favorite podcast, Beyond the Rainbow True Crime of the LGBT. If you're not already a listener, I hope you will go check out CJ's work and become her next Rainbow Warrior. Hey there, Rainbow Warriors. I'm CJ, host of Beyond the Rainbow, True Crimes of the LGBT. My episodes focus on crimes committed by and against the LGBTQ community. I've covered cases you probably have heard of, such as Matthew Shepard, Brandon Tina, and the Orlando Pulse nightclub massacre, as well as some lesser-known cases like the murder of Ray Hainish, the Australian gay beat murders, and the suspicious disappearance of Lisa Lynn Stone. I cover cases brought to me by listeners like Penny Brummer, who I believe was wrongfully convicted, taboo cases such as lesbian corrective rape and murder in South Africa, and Pray the Gay Away camps. I discuss gay serial killers, women who pretend to be men to hook up with other women, and trans murders. I'm opinionated and uncensored. I know I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but surely I'm someone shot at tequila. No matter what your gender or orientation in life might be, 
Please join me as I tackle rainbow crimes in search of unicorn justice. Remember, it's not a crime to be gay, unless you're a murderer. And now that you are back, let's go to the frigid Yukon for our next missing person story. The Yukon Territory covers 482,442 kilometers or roughly 299,776 miles of land. Mass, but only has a population of 35,874 people, with most of those people residing in the capital city of Whitehorse which is where our next beautiful lady, Loretta Anne Frank, lived. Loretta was known by those who loved her as Laura. My primary sources for Loretta's story were Canada Unsolved, Canada's Missing, and CBC. Loretta Anne Frank was the youngest of five siblings who grew up in Lower Post, B.C., a very tiny Dene community with a population of only around 300 people today that is located 23 kilometers or 13 miles southwest of Watson Lake. Loretta was born in 1970 and was only 19 years old when she vanished without a trace in late 1988 or early 1989. Loretta had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, although it is not stated anywhere what form of schizophrenia she suffered from, or in what ways it affected her or her thoughts and behaviors. Schizophrenia is a very serious mental health disorder which affects a person's ability to perceive reality, but it is different for each and every individual. Fortunately for her, Loretta did have the love and support of her family. She lived for a time with her brother and sister-in-law in Watson Lake, but at that time, mental health in Watson Lake was pretty awful. There were six psychiatrists who came in on a rotating monthly schedule meant that there was no consistency in the diagnosis or treatment of any mental health issues because you were starting over with each successive doctor. For this reason, Laura's family made the no doubt difficult decision to move Laura to an assisted living facility in Whitehorse, which is 473 kilometers or 278 miles from Watson Lake by car. Here it was hoped Laura would receive better mental health services and be able to build a stable, healthy life for herself. And, in fact, she was able to get herself a job at a local grocery store and may have even had a boyfriend. Sadly, this was all very short-lived for Laura. Several months after moving to Whitehorse, Laura returned to Watson Lake to spend Thanksgiving weekend 1988 with her family. Thanksgiving Sunday that year was October 10th. While she was with her family, Laura expressed her unhappiness with living in Whitehorse so far from the family support system she so desperately needed and begged her family to let her come back to Watson Lake with her brother. However, Laura's family felt it was best that she remain in Whitehorse where mental health services were better for her. 
She returned to Whitehorse, and that was the last time anyone ever spoke to Laura in over 32 years. Because of the physical distance between them, the exact date of Laura's disappearance is not known, but it was sometime late in 1988 or early in 89. Shortly after Laura lost contact with her family, they attempted to report her missing to RCMP early in 89, but they were turned away by officers who simply dismissed Laura as just another missing person. We don't know if this dismissal was due to the fact that she is Indigenous or the fact that she has mental health issues or maybe even both. But either way, Laura's family was not able to file a missing persons report on Laura for five years. This report was finally filed in 1993. I don't know about you, Crime Beacons, but I think a lot was lost in those five years. People would have moved away, memories would have changed, and this may be why so little is known about when Laura was last seen, or even who her boyfriend from Anchorage, Alaska may have been. We don't know any of these things. RCMP Corporal Calissa McLeod stated, quote, The date reported to police was 1993. Her family thought she was traveling and didn't report it right away, end quote. Wow, really? What a way to dismiss the family and dispute everything they say. I am certain that if RCMP officers did dismiss families' concerns, they weren't going to put that in a report. And just because the report was finally accepted in 1993 does not mean that the family had not made previous attempts. Not only that, but by simply dismissing this out of hand, the RCMP is not taking any accountability for the possibility of prior mistakes and therefore cannot do better moving forward. I would think that the best course of action would be to look into the family's statement that they were dismissed initially and see what can be done to ensure that this does not happen to anyone else. Accountability, responsibility, fix the problem. Laura and the people who loved her deserved better both then and now. I do realize that Corporal McLeod wasn't a part of that initial investigation or dismissal, but... As a representative of the RCMP at the time, she could have at least acknowledged the possibility that the family had not been permitted to file a missing persons report prior to 1993. I wouldn't think this outright dismissal would inspire any confidence in the RCMP on the part of the family. Investigators have checked hospitals and government agencies in both Canada and the U.S., but have found no indication that Laura is alive. Since then, Loretta Frank has been included in one social media appeal in 2014, which police say did generate some leads, but no further comment has been made since then. While checking records is a very vital step in the investigation, just because there are no records doesn't mean that Laura wasn't living a transient lifestyle or perhaps being trafficked or living under an alias but we don't know if these possibilities were ever investigated. Everyone who knew and loved Laura is left to wonder, wait, hope, and pray that one day they will find her or what happened to her. At the time of her disappearance, Loretta Ann Frank was 19 years old, 5 feet 8 inches tall, and weighing only 99 pounds. Wow, very tiny. 
and having brown eyes and shoulder-length brown hair. She wore prescription glasses and struggled with schizophrenia, which would require ongoing treatment. Loretta may or may not have had a boyfriend from Haines, Alaska at the time of her disappearance, though this has never been able to be ascertained for certain one way or the other. Anyone who knows anything about the 1988-89 disappearance or her activities prior to disappearing can contact M Division RCMP by calling 867-667-5555 and referencing case number 2014-162-5917 or if you want to be anonymous you can contact Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. And finally, for our final lovely lady, we will go all the way to Vancouver, British Columbia, and discuss the story of Danielle LaRue, who disappeared late in 2001. Danielle was 5 feet 7 inches tall and only weighed 125 pounds at the time of her disappearance. Danielle's father, Norman, came from a long line of hereditary chiefs of the Nisqually First Nation. All I know about her mother is that she was a white lady. Unfortunately, being descended from chiefs did not protect Danielle or her younger brother and sister from severe mental, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse and neglect at the hands of their father, mother, and multiple foster homes. Danielle was placed into the foster care system when she was only three years old, but this system didn't protect her any better than living with her parents had. Despite the abuse and having been separated from her younger siblings at such a young age, Danielle was fiercely protective of Kim and Norman Jr., so much so, in fact, that when Danielle was only 10 years old, she kidnapped her younger brother and sister from their abusive foster homes and was even able to hold the RCMP at bay for a short period of time. Danielle would always be fiercely loyal to and protective of Kim and Norman Jr. But sadly, the abuse had taken its toll on Danielle. And around the time of her mother's death, when she was only 13 years old, Danielle ran away from her latest foster home and went to live on the streets in Prince George, B.C. Eventually, Danielle found herself on the downtown east side of Vancouver. This is a place where, as Kim said, you go there and you come out in a body bag or a jail cell. Unfortunately, this seems to be the case for Danielle LaRue. Danielle disappeared in December 2001. The only trace of Danielle has been a very disturbing letter that the Vancouver Police Department received on New Year's Day 2002. The letter read as follows. I sent message about this to Vancouver Police a few days after incident, but have seen nothing in news about it. I'm guessing they either didn't receive it or can't match info to victim. So here is letter again with additional information. This is about Vancouver prostitutes who disappear at end of November 2002. Don't remember name she gave me. Had no ID. Sounded like she had just recently come to Vancouver. Caucasian. Long black curly hair. Jeans black leather jacket, tattoos, and jewelry. She is dead. 
then there's some blocked out, and then it says, I sent this info so you can notify her family. If you can, please make mention of her name in Vancouver Sun. I would like to know who she was. And then after another large blocked out portion, it continues. To her family, I am more sorry for this than you can imagine. I did not intend this, but am still responsible. Wish I could take it back, but can't. She will not be unmourned. Have brought flowers to her grave once already. Plan to do so every year as am able. Not ideal, but better than no visits at all. I know you can't forgive me, but please believe I tried my very hardest to bring her back. After going through missing persons reports in the area, police came to the conclusion that this letter was referring to Danielle LaRue, and she is listed on the Vancouver Police Department website as missing, presumed dead. But not all of Danielle's family believes that she is gone. In December 2013, Cold Case BC podcast and City News featured an interview with Danielle's older half-brother, Jules LaRue, who described Danielle as polite around family, but different with other people, and stated his belief that Danielle may have been sex trapped. As he pointed out, she was not mentioned by name in the letter, and nor was it signed by a killer and her body has not been found. So his position is completely understandable and could even make sense. As a result of all of the abuse she had endured, Danielle had developed a heroin addiction to cover the horrendous pain she must have felt, and this in turn led her to turn to sex work. These factors would have made her even more vulnerable to all types of predators, whether killers or sex traffickers. But without a body or proof of life, it is difficult to say who is right, and it leaves everyone who knew and loved Danielle in the most horrendous kind of limbo, not knowing whether she is alive or dead. I sincerely hope that the answers are found one day soon. At the time of her disappearance, Danielle LaRue was either 24 or 25 years old. She was 5 feet 7 inches tall, 125 pounds. She had wavy dark hair and light skin. There was a $10,000 reward in Danielle's case, but according to the Vancouver Police Department website, it expired on January 16, 2015. Anyone who can give answers about what may have happened to Danielle in 2001 is encouraged to contact Vancouver Police Department or Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers at 1-800-222-8477. And that's it for the stories of Loretta Frank, Charlene Catholic, and Danielle LaRue. These women are all still missing, and the families are still searching for the answers that they deserve. I can't even begin to imagine what that must be like for the people who loved Danielle, Loretta, and Charlene. And that is why I decided to talk about these cases, because no one should be left wondering. The anguish and the agony is unimaginable and my heart goes out to everyone involved. Thank you, Crime Beacons, for listening to this episode of Kaleidoscope of Crime. Sources used in the making of this episode were Missing and Murdered, CBC, 
Cabin Radio, Missing Children Database, Northwest Territory News, Windspeaker.com, CanadaUnsolved.com, Facebook, Justice for Native Women, Wikipedia, City News 1130, Vancouver Police Department Coldcases.ca, MissingPeople.net, GlobalNews.ca, BC Crime Stoppers, Taken Downtown East Side, YouTube, Britannica.com, Learn About the Yukon, A Guide to Lutzelkai, The Canadian Encyclopedia, and Indigenous Foundations. Sources used for this episode will be listed in the show notes. All writing, research, recording, and editing is done by me. Music is from Joseph Midday Music. Cover art was created and supplied by my friend CJ, who is the amazing lady behind Beyond the Rainbow True Crimes of the LGBT podcast. I hope you will go check her out if you aren't already a listener. Editing and technology assistance was supplied by Jason Peters, and I would like to send a special thank you to Ian Brannan of Frost Podcast and Coming Soon Sons of Cain Podcast, Eric A. Carter Landy from Crimes and Consequences Podcast. Without you guys, I could not have done this. Thank you for listening. Until next time, my crime beacons. Have a great two weeks. Bye.